You're listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Nordics, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordic region. I'm Shan Vance. I help connect businesses with tech talent. And today I'm your host. Today, I'm joined by Christian, Lars, Chris and Nicholas to discuss how can data teams ensure what they build and spend time on produces value. So before we get into it, let's work our way around the room with some quick introductions. Christian, do you want to start things off? Yeah. Hi, everyone. I'm Christian Müller. I'm Director of Data Science at the Lego Group, and I'm leading the incubation team we have there. So basically, I've been given the keys to all of the Lego Group with the mission to explore and prototype data science solutions together with the business and hopefully solve some valuable problems there. I think that's a short version of me. Great. Lars? Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a senior manager and lead data scientist in KPMG. Uh, before I was in KPMG, I've been in industry building data science teams in different industries for 10 to 15 years. So I'll try to bring that experience here. Great. Chris? Yes. Uh, my name is Chris. I'm a lead data scientist in Novo Nordisk in the manufacturing part. Uh, we have a hands on approach on leading and, and uh, trying out new things, uh, trying to solve problems within Novo Nordisk uh, and produce more insulin. Great. And finally, Nicholas? Yeah. Hi. I'm, uh, I'm a product manager at uh, TTC Net in our advanced analytics department, where we try to build uh, awesome data driven products uh, for the organization, especially in this uh, telco business, and, and try to utilize our fleet force the most efficient. Perfect. So now that we've established a context to each of you, let's move on to our topic in focus. So you all have a question or a statement on how can data teams ensure what they build and spend time on produces value. So as usual, I'll work around the room with each of these questions and allow you to elaborate. And each of you will also then have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. OK, so Christian, you firstly ask, how do you embed the value discussion in the development process? Do you want to explain that a little bit for us? Sure. So we have a lot of new projects where we start up and try to discover the problem and so on. I'm kind of curious as to as to how others approach that and actually figure out, or rather, when do you figure out whether it's valuable to pursue this, this problem? Um, and I think that's sort of the open question of this. Yeah, great. So Nicholas, what do you think? Um, yeah, I think like the um, the approach that we try to take at least is to evaluate. Like uh, to me at least, a lot of the stuff we're trying to do is about uh, increasing efficiency. Or um, so so what we try to do is to focus on addressing the inefficiency that is currently in place. So trying to say where is it that uh, we could do better, especially with the help of data science. Uh, and, and especially machine learning or AI solutions um, and try to then identify that gap between automating something and doing it in with the current processes um, and then take it from there as kind of the first step. Um, of course, then we have to evaluate how, how much of that inefficiency can we actually tackle uh, and solve. Um, but that that comes as part of like a, a POC approach. Uh, at least that's the the way we are trying to to attack it. Yeah, Lars, what about you? Yeah, I think one thing I've I've 
tend to focus on is understanding why we want to do something. So focusing a lot on the context and the humans involved in whatever we're doing, because more or less, no matter what we're doing, some people will be affected by what we do or the change we implement. So I think I like to take a step back, understanding the context of the problem we're trying to solve and why we are trying to solve it. Uh, and from then, the value of solving the problem should be pretty apparent. Uh, and then hopefully bring that into phrasing it, then defining it into a data science problem. If that's that's the case now, that's what we are focusing on a lot. But, but sometimes it's actually more user interface that that's important or something else. But but yeah, I really like to start thinking about why are we doing this? What is the reason we think this is a problem? Yeah, great. And Chris? Yeah, I, I actually would love to echo uh, what Lars said because I think it's, it's a uh, it's very easy for data scientists who love building models and playing around with data and you know getting their hands dirty and, and jumping right into analysis. Uh, it's it's tempting to to jump over the the first part of actually deep diving the problem and the people behind the supposed problem uh, because very often these people who come to you and with a need they might not have a good understanding of your toolbox of you know, your data science mindset and vice versa. Uh, if you have a wide uh, range of, let's say, customers, uh, you probably have a pretty poor understanding of what their day-to-day -day life looks like. Um, so, so empathizing both ways is a very important first step, I would say, of the process. Yeah, great. So Christian, what do you think of your own question then? <laughs> I think it, it. I think it sounds very similar to things I've heard uh, and seen myself, and and especially, I see two types of stakeholders. There are those who comes with a problem and no idea what your toolbox looks like, and then there are the the customers and stakeholders that just know that the data science that's a sexy thing. So so we want we want one of those, um, and they already have a solution in mind. So actually, to dare stay in the in the whole scoping phase uh, for a while and explore the why and uh, what problem is it that we're trying to solve i think is, is very important and that's what i'm i'm also hearing that uh, all of you say um so, so just daring to not jump directly into doing the analysis and the data exploration and the modeling which is uh, what a lot of us think are fun um and and the and 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 why we we went this way in the first place and then i think it 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 for me it also comes back in uh sort of both once you've done proof of feasibility uh which is the concept we have is, is just rechecking it do we still believe there's value and once you've done the first implementation do we still see value so so for us it's it's we're trying to embed it all the way through the process yeah, I think I would like to, to ask you, Christian, about, so, so I think that sounds good. I think we're all pretty much aligned. So at least that's good to hear that we are not uh, in the stage where we want to just do models. <laughs> but uh, but how do you how do you then ensure, do you have any ideas of how we ensure that we get the right evaluation metrics for our models in? Because I think that's another thing I see, that we can do models and we focus on accuracy or something, but how do we tie that back to the value? Do you have and a good approach for that. I I don't have the right <laughs> formula for it. I think for me, it's it's all about spending the time and trying to figure out what is it that you're trying to impact. And I, and that's also the the other side of it for me at least is 
if you don't know what you're going to impact. So what are the metrics that you're going to measure a change in? Usually what I see from projects like that is that they don't pan out to, to anything significant. But if, if you can actually define up front what is it that you're trying to change, I think we've been pretty successful. Um, but no, I don't have the, the formula that you can just apply and saying this is, this is exactly how it's going to look like. I think it's just a lot of hard work and a lot of conversations with the stakeholders and a lot of uh, um, deep analysis of, uh, at your desk of trying to figure out what what is the right what is the right metrics here. Yeah, I know it was a bit of a nasty question, but I think I think what I agree with you what you said about trying to define the value metrics and then use that. At least that is that is how I like to see it, to define. We found the value now with the humans in the scoping phase define the proper value metric you want to optimize. So we tie the model performance to that because they don't necessarily scale linearly. So sometimes you need to stop modeling earlier than you would normally like or the other way around. So I agree. So if there's anyone listening that does have the answer, <laughs> by all means get in touch. <laughs> no, so great. We'll move on to our next question then. We'll come to you, Nicholas. Uh, so you've asked, how do we create and measure qualitative value in a quantitative data context? So can you elaborate a little bit more for us then? Yeah, um, so my my sentiment behind the question was that I think that a lot of the stuff that we're trying to do is, is working with larger numbers. And um, I imagine, especially in a manufacturing context, it's a lot about like the hard numbers and trying to see how much how much can we increase efficiency or uh, how efficiently can we can we do something um and and to me on the opposite end of things is is this more qualitative uh, values like um for instance what we're facing is customer experience so so how do we how do we kind of measure something that is that is more qualitative uh, when we're trying to do things in in this more big data quantitative uh, context great so chris what do you think Mm, I think that's a really difficult question um, because it is a translation of something that is to a high degree uh, subjective. Um, at least previously when I've done work, it has been with, with uh, stakeholders who have an easy time describing what they need with words. Um, they, they want to be able to do something like this or that. And somehow this needs to be translated into bits and bytes and hopefully some key metric that you can, you know, prove that you've made a difference when you, once you're finished with this piece of work. Uh, I think that there are some tools out there that can help uh, this collaboration between a data scientist and a stakeholder um, and make them kind of meet on common ground. Something like um, uh, design thinking for the initial phase, you know, get Together, work together on, on the brainstorming part. And once you reach uh, a certain, um, let's say, milestone in, in the brainstorming and you want to start building, uh, there's, there are tools such as, I think it's called Gherkin or something like Gherkin language, where you, it's a way of, of describing what you want to build so that there's a common understanding, both from stakeholders and the data scientists, of what you expect to happen. Uh, you know, uh, with what you built. When I click button A, this happens, and so forth. It's a there are a lot of things out there, 
um, but people need to, I think, utilize them more. Great, Lars? Yeah, I think you, you touched upon it, Chris, at least how I like to see it, the design thinking uh, kind of sprung to mind. So what we do typically when assigning teams is have what we call future experience designers. So someone who knows design thinking and, and human design, human-centered design. So exactly doing that, understanding those, what you say, Nicholas, what are, what is a user experience, a customer experience? What is that? It's, it's not just the metrics, but what is actually their, their journey and what is, what is it what they, they want and what is it we want to improve actually on, on your side, for instance, on that. And then when we have that understanding, back to what you also said, Kristen, staying in the scope of phase and understanding phase longer than you would probably normally tend to do as a data scientist or technical geek, uh, stay in that and then understand what are then the good metrics. Also, as we say, Chris, how can we translate those qualitative subjective insights into something that's objective and we can measure when we do our different initiatives and models? Yeah, yeah I would. Um... I mean, I was a little bit on the the other side of that question of how can you actually measure it? And I as I'm from the beginning, sort of figuring out how can we find quantitative measures of of something which is qualitative. And if it comes to something like customer experience, I would I would try to look at do we have NPS surveys that we can actually use, and and are we even allowed to do A/B tests on customers, stuff like that. Um, the challenge if you work more than with internal stakeholders who are part of the development process, um, I I find that they often just the fact that you talk about it, they start to change behavior. So and and if you get them in on it, they will most likely think that this is a great new solution, even though it might not be that great. Or if they get in late, then you can have developed the most perfect solution for them, and they just dislike it because they weren't part of it. So I think once you work with the stakeholders, measuring quality for them is a little harder. If you do it from someone who isn't involved in the development process, I, I would try to figure out ways to get feedback from them uh, afterwards. But I like the approach of actually co-designing it up front and saying this is what the user experience should be like. This is why you should be happy once we're done. Great. Nicholas, anything else you want to add to this one then? No, I'm just um, as a as a former product designer. Uh, I'm very happy to hear that uh, even uh, hardcore data scientists know that design thinking is a thing. So uh, uh, that at least makes me happy. And and I I think um, I also kind of agree with what uh, Christian said about trying to uh, find a way to use quantitative approaches to measure uh, qualitative outcomes. Um, and I think in terms of um, the whole um, stakeholders and, and user engagement, both up front and in the end, um, at least the concept of hybrid intelligence as opposed to like uh, artificial intelligence really is, is one of the things that I really believe in, at least uh, can, can really empower this uh, engagement, both with stakeholders and end users uh, of the data products that we build. Great. So anything else before we move on then? Perfect. So Lars, you have asked, what do you see as your biggest challenges for your teams in realizing the value that data and AI promises? So what do you think are the biggest challenges? <laughs> yeah, so, so what I think is the biggest 
are the biggest challenges is something that clearly is not happening in our team so that's good to hear but um, but i would like to hear still your experiences and, and what you see that but, but something i see tends to happen a lot is that we focus on on, on data science mode and modeling mode and and narrowing down the solution or the problem into something that we can find a solution for and and i see as a consequence of that is a long time many teams spend a long time in development and tuning the models rather than getting them out in production and actually seeing how they work and the value they actually provide to the business or or the customer so that is that is what i'd like to hear your other guys opinion on what you see as the challenges because it seems like clearly we have all a common understanding we need to focus on the problem but I'd like to see then what else is hindering the, the value we are taking Christian, what do you think are the biggest challenges with this? <laughs> I think there are a couple of different things. And I think if, if you ask my team, being the incubation team, we're always on the forefront of what data do we actually have in our systems and so on. And I think, so I think for, for my, if you ask my team, the, the biggest challenge would definitely be getting high enough quality data because a lot of our stakeholders and so on say they have data and then they have an Excel spreadsheet somewhere in the bottom of a drawer, which to be honest, no data scientists really like, um, but that's something sometimes what we have to work with, at least to to make the proof of feasibility and saying, okay, we actually have something that works here, and then we can start building the data platform from there, the data foundation for that. If you ask me, I would say it's, it's more actually scoping and having stakeholders who are capable of clearly articulating what they actually, what what is the problem that they're trying to solve, and and getting to that understanding i would say is, is one of the bigger bigger challenges of, of not just saying oh but we need this and and then you say okay but but why do we need this um because i need it and 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 then you you have to sort of continue the dialogue from there and, and saying well yeah but but what is the problem that we're trying to solve so i think it, it's it's definitely in the scoping as soon as we are we are done uh, having a clear scope and we have data then uh, and i'm offending all data scientists in the world, but then it's pretty easy from there on. Uh, then it's just a technical challenge, and and that that is what a lot of us are, are world experts in, in solving. Yeah, Chris, what do you think? I think he's spot on. Uh, like the data, uh, I think one of the things that I've, I've said a lot of times uh, in previous positions as well is that data science work, eighty percent of it is data engineering work. Um, if uh, at least I think where we are currently for most companies in Denmark, at least the big ones. Um, uh, a lot of the companies that want to tout that they are data-driven and they do data, like they make data-driven decisions, in reality, they are not that data-driven as you know they might want to be or that they believe that they are. And a lot of it has to do with the data foundation, like the, the actual um, data strategy for these companies. Are they... Are they handling their data well? Are they making it available? Are you know is it is it trustworthy, valid data that they are exposing internally to the people who can do analytics on top of it? Um, I just think that most companies right now are just not that mature. Uh, you know, you know when you measure these metrics, um, I'm not sure how it is in in, in Lego or or uh, uh, TDC, um, but. As far as I can see, there's still a lot of work to be done. Um, luckily, there's more and more focus on it. Um, 
but I think it starts there. And, yeah. and I think that the truth is, uh, as you say, um, a company is just not one one company. I mean, we we have at least we have areas where we are very mature in terms of of data usage, data driven decisions, data uh, quality, and then there are other areas within the within the Lego Group where. Um, you have to explain what data is in the first place uh, before you start the rest of the dialogue. So, so, and I think it's it's the same in in most companies I've seen at least. It's uh, it's you 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 have to start out in a place where they're a little more mature if you want to get success there. Mm. I I think this is one of the things. Like we're asking what holds teams back from realizing the the promises of AI and and ML. I mean, the promises of AI and ML are, are you know, huge, right? Um, but if you have these small localized teams that uh, to even do analytics have to specialize in how the data is stored in Excel sheets, for example, or in some other you would just end up with, I think, in many cases, teams that build their own local analytics solutions throughout through the company. So you end up with a lot of mushrooming uh, this term is, I think it's just pretty well understood term, mushrooming um, uh, in the company. And that, like this, this basically creation of new analytics silos all over the place without any oversight or governance, I think that holds teams back a lot because they, you don't, you don't uh, enable or kind of encourage sharing of data. You don't, you can't reuse uh, methods used on the data very easily as well. Um, yeah, so kind of going for a circle. It all starts with a, a nice data strategy, I think. Yeah, it's like yeah. The, 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 the opposite is data silos, right? Like, um, at least that's something I can recognize as well, is that yeah. data is, is placed where it's needed or where it's being used. And then it, it's like the accessibility is, is, is hard and the consistency across those different silos is, is also a challenge, I think. Um, yeah. Any more challenges anyone can think of? I think the the one thing that kind of hung with me as well was the was more on the end side of things, so the change management part. Uh, so so when we build something that is an amazing product uh, or a great solution or a great analysis or whatever it is, that it actually one thing is all of the value that we've promised with AI, and we actually even maybe realize that promise in our development, but as soon as it goes into reality, it fails to meet those expectations. And the easiest thing to blame is is the is the fancy robot. Uh, and and instead of maybe considering what what did we do uh, inappropriately in the in the change management phase and the implementation phase basically. Okay. Great. So finally, Chris, you'd like to discuss the pitfalls and the red flags. So what to avoid, what to ensure, and what are signs that something is off track in your team or project? So do you want to elaborate a little bit? Sure. So so I think if you read around, um, you know, what to do as a data scientist, uh, you know, hands-on data scientist or uh, product owner these days, it's pretty, pretty easy to find uh, you know, what does good look like um, when everything's running smoothly? You know, what should you be doing? But what about when you're, you know, halfway through a project or in the beginning, uh, in the first steps of 
starting up a new data product, what are the signs, you know, that something is going wrong? And, you know, what are the pitfalls to avoid? I think a lot of these things are, uh, are questions that you can answer pretty much only with experience. And I'm hoping that, you know, with us five people in this talk that we can uh, share some of the, the uh, mistakes that we've made uh, over the years. Uh, I can at least point to a few that I've made uh, and learned from. Um, that was the, uh, the idea behind the title. Yeah, I'll, I'll be happy to, to, to jump in with maybe the most obvious, but one thing that I have failed projects on again and again and again is if you don't have a clearly identified and engaged stakeholder. Um, so if, if you either have some stakeholders who aren't really engaged or someone, oh, here's definitely a problem you need to solve, but you can't really find who are you solving it for, it was just someone coming up with an idea in another area, then those projects have always failed um, for me. It, 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 you just can't roll them out because there's no receiver in the other end. I, I really like that idea at the, that point as well, like bringing on the customer early and then keeping them engaged throughout the entire process, I think is vital to, uh, yeah. to making a good product in the end. We talk about you know, having the right key metrics to measure whether or not what we built created value. But I think if, if, if you have the right stakeholders engaged throughout the entire process of building, the key metric might not even be necessary. It might only be necessary for reporting to higher ups. Because as long as your stakeholders are engaged and happy, then I think that's a success. And, and you benefit from the IKEA effect as well. You know, people who partially partake in whatever they're building have a you know cognitive bias towards being more happy about the product itself. I'm actually curious, how do you keep your stakeholders engaged throughout the whole process? Threats. Um <laughs> <laughs> So, so what we what we tend to do is to um, like we we try to do agile in our product development, and what we we like to do is to make sure that we have uh, business owners part of the the, the agile ceremonies um, so that they are close connected, um, and and try uh, as best we can to to give them tasks as well um, from time to time. It's not like they have. Um, the same commitment in terms of workload in the sprints uh, as uh, as developers has, but from time to time we we try to push something on their side to make sure that we gauge their engagement basically to see are they still committed are they still trying to to help us build the most awesome product, uh, and 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 of course we we try to uh, gain their feedback as much as possible through these. Um, especially like sprint reviews and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah, great. Lars, so what do you try to avoid or what do you need to ensure? Yeah, so I think also previously when in industry myself, but things are a bit different with the consulting. You typically have people involved because people are paying for you to do stuff quite a lot. So so people will have a focus that you get things done. So, but from back in the industry, I, I fully agree with actually what everybody said here, that keeping the stakeholders involved throughout the process, and I think grid uh, agile development is a very good way to, to ensure that they are involved throughout the project and you can release incrementally so you can get real feedback from users uh, along the way. I think ex exactly the co-creation part 
and uh, and the focus i think you also mentioned it before nicholas with the hybrid intelligence like instead of trying to get away from the mindset of thinking technology can solve everything that we need a hybrid between humans and technology it's not a matter of just the capable you also data christian the tech side is often very easy the difficult part is the context of the tech and and how it's being used so i think i think it's Fully agree with those points that everybody has been making there. Yeah. So, so one of the things that that at least sprung to mind in terms of like the ensure that 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 we are uh, not off track is 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 trying to run like uh, experiments, like you are saying, Lars. Also, like the the stuff that Agile facilitates is these incremental deliveries. But but at the very early stage setup, what is like the first experiment that we're going to run, uh, and and have some key metrics for that one. And if that experiment fails you're prof- probably off on the wrong track uh, or off track. Um, and then, then comes the whole thing about gauging whether you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole, um, if, if you're actually using the right toolbox or the right tools in the toolbox to, to fix this problem. Um, at least that's, that's one of the pitfalls that I almost fell in, uh, was running an experiment which failed miserably and then thinking, uh, it's probably just not just because we didn't push hard enough. <laughs> um, luckily, other people helped me see that uh, it was um, probably the wrong peg and the wrong hole. Yeah. So, Chris, do you want to give us your experiences? Sure. Um, so, I can pick it back off of what you just mentioned. Um, uh, so, this this is probably obvious to a lot of people, but I'm going to mention it anyway. Is this whole attacking a, a collaboration or a problem uh, with the waterfall versus agile mindset. Um, we've talked about how it's important to have stakeholder um, engagement when you co-create something together or ideally co-create something together. And, and it's really important that they have skin in the game, so to speak, that they have um, some kind of investment into what you're building uh, so that it, doesn't end up being a situation where they pawn off some half-baked idea and you run with this idea for two or three months and return with something that they didn't like. Um, it's much more advantageous, I'd say, to, to uh, kind of fail fast and fail early, uh, you know, have small increments of, of work finished, showed off, and then see, is this what you wanted? Uh, because even if you're at the very beginning of the project, spend a lot of time of empathizing back and forth during the design phase, for example, um, the customer can still change their mind, you know, and if they change their mind, whatever you made is not necessarily worthless, but it <laughs> it's not relevant anymore, potentially. Better to find out a month from now than six months from now. Yeah, I I've, definitely, I've definitely made that mistake before. Okay, I'll just jump in. I want to say something. But yeah, I agree, I agree Chris. There's also one thing with the incremental development. Get it out there to the actual users in a real context to see how they interact with it. The longer time from the, the release cycles are, the, the higher the risk is that you're building something that the users don't want, either because things have changed or because you didn't fully understand what you were trying to solve. You need three months to solve your first little part of the problem. At least that's that's my view on it. That try to really have those production uh, releases so you can actually see people use it in 
in the wild and not just in an experiment or in a closed laboratory. Yeah, the the, the thing that kind of sprung to mind for me was like the, the stuff you mentioned, Chris, that, that we can't have two, three months from uh, agreement on what are we going to build and then a delivery. But we also just discussed a minute ago the the challenges of data silos and data quality and all of those things. And what I at least experience oftentimes is that we have to do some data engineering to get started. So that whole discussion on what are we going to build might be upfront. And we have all of the ambitions to deliver something in two, three, four weeks, but then comes the data and 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 then our whole timeline gets postponed, right? And we end up with the two, three months for like the first uh, delivery, at least, of course. When we have the first delivery, we do incremental deliveries as much as we can, but so I don't know what do do you experience the, the same way, Chris, or do you experience it differently? And what have what have you kind of um, seen that works in terms of um, making sure that we're still on track when we have to spend some time doing data preparation? Basically, it's really difficult because uh, a lot of the early work, as you said yourself, uh, you can be surprised by by how difficult it is to even get a project started because the data might be really ugly or the infrastructure is not there yet. And a lot of the work there might just be, you know, data scientists, engineers, platform engineers working on enablers for you later on, right? And and showing a stakeholder, hey, listen, we have a, a cloud environment up and running, or you know, we have our streams that are running perfectly now, and logging, we have all the logging you need. They don't care. They just don't. Um, and communication here is key. You really need to have your communication. Uh, you know, it has to be your A game you bring to this these meetings to explain why is this necessary. Um, but it's also a balance. It doesn't necessarily make sense to go out and ensure that you have fully integrated AD authentication towards what you're building uh, in the like in the in the first phase of what you're building. It you have to um, I think yeah there's a balance there uh, to be struck. Uh, you said for example you had uh, 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 an experience here where you expected it to take a lot shorter time, but it ended up being three or four months until the first delivery. I think that's that's it does sound like a long time, um, and uh, and I think it is also very difficult to to chop up a project into small deliveries. You know, every single month or every single two weeks, however long your sprint is, it's an uh, an ongoing problem. What what we're trying to do, and then just to feed up feed off of what you just said is is the first iteration we do is usually on snapshots of data instead of trying to uh, to to automate everything because if if it turns out that there's nothing in the data, so if you're trying to make a forecast and there's no predictive value in the data, then just drop the project and move on. Um, so that's one thing we're trying to do, and that can usually be done a little bit more rapidly. Um, but then comes the phase where you then have to automate things. And that's when some stakeholders have a tendency to lose engagement because they, after two weeks, you got the first prediction and wow, it worked and this is amazing. So in, in, so can we just have it in production now? And then what we find there, well, or what I often find is um, you can you can do some dirty little tricks and, and actually try to see, can I get some value out of just some data visualization or something like that? That isn't actually data science, but it's still working with data. Um, and and there we have been successful at least uh, at least a couple of times where we just find, okay, there's, there's actually a 
really basic problem we can solve just by showing them the data. Already that improves it. And then you kind of don't need the same quality of data if you're just visualizing it, because if there is an outlier here, there, or if you're missing values, people have, I mean, they're fairly robust towards stuff like that. So, so that, that's at least a few of the tricks that we try to use from time to time in order to keep the engagement. And then obviously just keep the dialogue with the stakeholder because often when we dive into data, uh, there are a thousand questions of, of what does it actually mean? And it's not always particularly obvious when you get a new data set what it actually means. And even if you think you know what it means, it's probably a good idea of validating it together with the stakeholder. Of the discussion today, I'm more curious about the data quality side because I think that was a one thing we all mentioned. So sorry if I can just uh, go off topic a bit. Um, but actually, so because yeah, data quality is a problem, and it will always be a problem. I think even you, no matter how much money we pour into data governance. So so, how do you deal with that? Because often some of the questions, the problems with the data will be the same. So missing values or different types of typos and matching data sources with fuzzy logic or something different. So so how do you address that? I think the the thing that we at least are trying to do is is really leverage this hybrid intelligence um, and and the product mindset. So trying to deliver something as quick as possible where we can start getting the feedback that we need. So that when we know we have a, as a situation where the data is maybe not consistent or the quality of the data is perhaps not as high. So we need some kind of, um, maybe it's a labeling effort or uh, an enrichment effort or anything like that. We try to build some kind of, of very small scale product with the stuff that we have. And, and as Kristen mentioned earlier as well, it's not always like the most data sciencey stuff, it might be just data presentations, um, but then we in return are getting some kind of feedback um, so that we can start building uh, high quality data sets uh, by leveraging this hybrid intelligence approach. Uh, yeah, like that. That's that's at least how we try to to mitigate the situations. We're also also trying to see is there any like can we uh, leverage some kind of expert knowledge to set up more like classical AI approaches where it's more rule-based and more like if we set up this series sequence of, of rules uh, together, can we build some kind of uh, um, less advanced algorithm uh, that can kind of suit the same need under a set of assumptions and circumstances. But generally what we would like to do is the, is the more hybrid intelligence approach. Christian? What are your thoughts? <laughs> I think it's one of the things that we constantly struggle with, and I don't think I have necessarily the right solution. One of the things I we, we're trying to do is is make the POC on a on a data dump because then you can then you you're also a little more free to actually just sort in the data you can use and can't use, um, and then from there take it and say, okay, we actually we can prove that there is a feasibility for for data science here and that we can solve a valuable problem, but we need to increase the data quality. And then we can push it a little bit back to the business and saying, working with them of, of how can we uh, improve the, the data quality here and work together with them. And, and 
oftentimes what you what you need to in order to increase the the data quality especially if it comes from from human inputs is to also that they they understand the value that they're getting from the data because if they just type it into a system and don't see any value of it they probably don't really care to be honest at least that's my own feeling when i have to type things in that i don't understand why um you you, you become a little bit sloppy but if you actually understand that the only way that the rest of the process works is is through correctly typed in data and then back to the whole ux the user experience design of how can you how can you help the user to avoid mistakes can you can you make data validation in the ui or something like that and of course that doesn't solve the the historical data that you also want to be good because then you have a bigger training set so so that's just uh, that's unfortunately just hard work and picking the path that works for you yeah and um, what about you chris uh, i think this is a very interesting topic um so for the for the first phases of any kind of uh, uh innovation using data i think you know working on a data dump that's completely valid you know it's going to be noisy it's going to be a little ugly you do what you can to get some proof of feasibility. But what happens afterwards? I think we can all accept that regardless of what your, your data collection might be, if it's human automated or something third, there's bound to be some kind of noise in there somewhere, unless you can put up some guarantees of, of perfect data, which is difficult to do, uh, I think, in, in real life. Um, so what, what becomes interesting to me is, is uh, this concept of, of forming guarantees for the data products in the uh, other end, like the data product on top of your data, forming guarantees for the output of it. So let's say you have a model that's trained on some amount of data, and you want some person, your stakeholder, to trust your predictions, uh, for example. Uh, how do you give these guarantees, and how strict do they need to be to satisfy your stakeholder needs? Uh, especially in, in pharmaceuticals, this is an a very, very challenging aspect of it. Do you want to have some kind of uh, camera uh, pointed at your production lines that automatically approves or uh, rejects vials of medicine? That's, uh, you know, that person's life depends on that rejection or approval. Um, you need to have some very, very strict uh, guarantees on the performance of not only the camera, but the model that, you know, uh, takes the camera feed in, and then whatever transformations of data happen in between those two. Uh, it's really, really difficult. And I would love oh. to see more of, um, there's there's a, a kind of a, a, a topic or field where a lot of research is being poured into right now called, kind of, let's say, explainable AI or explainability. And I think this, this has a lot of potential to uh, help build trust um, with our stakeholders. Just, just to add to that, I, I really believe that that's also where you can use the, the more hybrid approaches, as Nicholas has rightfully mentioned a couple of times. We do that in our, um, so so the LEGO group have LEGO Life, which is an online uh, SOMI platform, basically for kids and potentially adults, but mainly kids to, to post their LEGO creations and talk about LEGO. And we want that to be a really safe platform for everyone. So, so no nudity, no war, no nothing. It has to be completely safe for kids to to be there. So we have a huge moderation team that that moderates everything going into there. And then, 
behind that moderation team, we started building an AI moderation. We still don't let anything through to the user that haven't been checked by a human, but at least now we are, I think at about 50% of the rejections that happens, happens automatically. So, so what the, the humans on the other side see is a cleaner, better, uh, hardly moderated data uh, coming through, and then they can reject the rest because some of the things are really, really hard to detect by, by AI and some of the things are really, really easy to detect. So, so let's start with the easy parts and then, then let's do the rest for um, what the humans and, and I know it's not life threatening, but, but it, it's really, we really want kids to be safe around the world and, and there's just no two ways about it. So even though uh, people might not die from it, it's still, uh, it's still really a core piece of, of what we believe in. I guess a comment from my side on this, but I think it answers it. The comment, something that, that I've been looking into for the past couple of years is, is machine learning for data quality, I call it. And, and surprisingly, machine learning is very good at actually fixing the bad data. So, and, and I, sometimes I think about it and I don't really fully understand why logically it shouldn't work, but it does. Uh, that you can actually apply machine learning on your data set to improve the data quality and then feed that into machine learning to make better predictions. It, it sounds weird, but it works. I've seen it countless times, so I think that's just a good tip for everybody working with this because it clearly is a common, common issue with it, but you can actually use the same tools to fix your data before you use the tools to solve the problems uh, in the business. I think that's, that's quite interesting. And just just one maybe one last comment to this because I think it's a, such a huge thing. Um, where we start out is often being contacted by stakeholders or finding things where we oh here's a problem we should definitely use data science on. Uh, but I think we often forget the journey of of maybe you don't need to jump directly to data science. Maybe it's fine to do a prototype saying yeah that's definitely something we can we can gain value from data and we can gain value from data science. Once you have sort of check, we can actually do that. Let's start the journey where we start automating the data collection, visualizing it, just putting it up on dashboards to make you, to, to give humans insights, moving on to more like diagnostic pieces where we actually start deep diving into the data. Because during that journey where you, where you do all of these things, you also have a tendency, or at least that's what I see, there is a tendency, you also start cleaning up your data more and more and people become aware of the value it creates and want to have higher quality data so then you rework the business processes so when you come back with the data scientists and saying okay now we're actually ready with the data science piece then then you have better understanding of data in the business better quality data um more data potentially also because you 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 gathered more data as you started visualizing it and so on so i think it it, it sometimes is a long journey but it's a journey we shouldn't underestimate and, and don't necessarily just jump to the data science solutions, even though well, my title suggests that we should do exactly that. Okay, great. So we'll leave it there for today. Uh, so I want to just take this opportunity to thank you all, uh, Nicholas, Christian, Lars, and Chris, for providing some great insights into today's topic. Hopefully everyone can take something away from it, including our listeners, of course. So thank you all for listening. And if you would like to get involved in one of our upcoming podcasts, please reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at shan.vance at evolution-nordics.com. 
I hope you've enjoyed listening. This has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. See you next time.